immovable, the idea of being immovable. That is our topic today. We have three main points. We have three texts and one great God. Let me tell you the points ahead of time. What we're doing is, here, here's, the, here's just the kind of point. This isn't an outline. This is just kind of the takeaway points. Let me just give them to you ahead of time. It is certain victory produces an immovable heart. Your victory is the resurrection and thus be immovable in kingdom work. That's what we're talking about today. That's what we're hoping to take away today. We're going to be in Psalm 112, Psalm 27, and 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this meeting that we call a worship service where we get to come and behold you and worship you and and just dwell in your word and sing your praise, God, as we are meant to do. God, what a blessing it is to be among believers whom we will be with for eternity. Oh God, make these things real this morning to our hearts. Oh God, would you help us to understand your word We pray that you would illuminate it, even in the places where I get things wrong. I pray that you would illuminate the word of God and we would be blessed, that it would not go out in vain, that we would be helped and that you, Father, would be glorified as we have immovable hearts looking forward to the victory that you've given to us. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you're using those little Bibles in front of you, turn to Psalm 112. It will be on the screen, but that's where we're starting. And what we're doing in Psalm 112 is we want to learn about this word, immovable. We want to learn what does it mean to be immovable. All right, we're kind of getting a definition or a description. And so first we see in in verse number 6, verses 6 through 8, it says, For the righteous will never be moved. All right, that's our phrase. That's where we're getting this whole thing. The righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. And so if we're wanting to understand this, if we're wanting to have this immovable heart, this theme that's going to come up in Scripture several times, this thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to have, this thing that'll bring peace to us and fuel our kingdom work, well, first we want to know, about the word immovable. And so first, let me tell you, it's the Hebrew word moat, and it means to totter, shake, or slip. So we wanna, we're going to be people who don't totter, shake, or slip. And now this is obviously a metaphor, right? Otherwise, this sermon is going to be about not being clumsy. Right? You don't, okay, don't totter, shake, or slip, you Christians, because that's of the devil. That, that's what this sermon would be if, uh, if this wasn't a metaphor, but it is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for security and blessing from God. Security and blessing from God. I will not be moved. He will not be moved. What does that mean? Well, you can imagine a man in Israel, and he has a lot of, he has this land, right? They all had a bunch of land. So he has this land, and he has, you know, wealth. He has these blessings, and now his enemies, they want his land. All right, will they be able to take it from him? Well, no, because that would move him. That would shake him. That would take away his economic security. And so, no, he will not be moved, even economically in this text. All right? Or these enemies, will they be able to take his life? Well, no, because then he would be shaken. Then he would be 
tottered. His health would totter at that point, certainly, if they kill him. And so, no, he wouldn't, he's not moved. Well, what about his, his kids? Even further up in the verse, his kids, I mentioned, said they'll be great in the land. So are his kids going to be a, a, a shame for him? Is he going to be disgraced because of his kids? No, that, will, that, will, that would bring shame to him. That would move him. So this man in Psalm 112, the righteous, the one who loves the commandments of the Lord, he will not be overthrown. He will not be destroyed. He will not be disgraced. He will not be moved. That's what we're saying. But on the contrary, it says he will be remembered forever. On the contrary, this man is a source of blessing and justice for people, so much so that he will be remembered for it. That both his kids and the people, the poor that he helps, that he pours his life out for, will be helped for it. That is the outward picture of being immovable. It's also used of the city of Jerusalem, so the same thing. It's secure, it's firm, it's stable. That's the outward picture of it being immovable. It is secure in its prosperity. But that, as you might have guessed, is not really what we're going to be focusing on today for two reasons. One, because where we're going is 1 Corinthians 15. And when Paul is talking about what an immovable person is in 1 Corinthians 15, he is not at all talking about material or economic security. And secondly, I mean, most of the New Testament doesn't emphasize that. I mean, those principles are still the same. Faithfulness often gets blessed. That's often what the Lord does. But the New Testament doesn't emphasize that point. And so we're not going to emphasize that here. We're going to emphasize not the outer display of what it means to be immovable, but the inward one, what is the heart of an immovable person? Because that's something that's for us right now. What is the heart of someone who is immovable? Well, he's going to tell us. So starting back at the top, for the righteous will never be moved, moat, he won't be shaken, he won't be tottered. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So this is an immovable heart. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. What we're going to do now is we're going to take each one of those phrases and just kind of pull the meaning out of it. An immovable heart. This is the heart that we want. And so number one, first, well, first, he is not afraid of bad news. That can mean two different things, and I think both of them are helpful. It can mean that he's not afraid of the possibility of bad news. All right, have you ever been just, it's probably nighttime, because this always happens at night. You're, just, you're, sitting, you're sitting there, maybe you're laying in bed, and you're not afraid of real things. You're afraid of possible things that might happen that aren't even happening right now. Am I the only one? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so that's often what we do. We're afraid, of, we're afraid of the possibility of bad news. I used to sit in bed when I was younger and think about how to survive animal attacks. <laughs> I lived in the suburbs. I, I don't know why, but this is us, right? So that, that's one possibility here. And, and the other thing that, that he's talking about is, well, if there's actual bad news, someone comes to him and says, bro, the enemy is right over there. They have double the people we have. By the way, your commander... Uh, he decided to be on their side. By the way, you have COVID, you know, like for an anachronism a little bit. 
And so, so that may be an actual, actual bad news. And so he, it says that he's, he's not afraid of bad news. Now you see, uh, the, this fear here is, is the destabilizer. All right, we're talking about our hearts. What's going to make our heart unstable? You can imagine your heart as a house. All right, and what, what's going to knock that house down? Well, a couple things. But in this, in, in this illustration, in this sermon, we're talking about epic floodwaters, okay? Now let's pretend this house is next to the ocean. For some reason, it's just sitting there on the beach. And then a big old wave comes, and that will make the house move, totter, shake, slip. That's going to knock that house down. And what that is, is fear. Fear is what destabilizes our hearts. Not necessarily the actual bad thing, by the way. It's the fear. You can go to that bad thing with a trusting heart or with an ignorant heart or with a foolish heart. You can go to that bad thing with all kinds of different hearts. But uh, it is fear that destabilizes us. And so we see that he is, he is not afraid of bad news. And the next, we see that his heart is firm. Now, this is just this is the opposite. This is the thing that stabilizes him. That's the Hebrew word kun, which means to, to be set up, established, or fixed. Uh, two, a couple weeks ago, really just one week ago, my wife and I spent two weeks in Topsail, North Carolina. And it was awesome. You guys been to Topsail? You guys have. A lot of people have been to Topsail. It's a sweet place. All right, and so, and it's this thin little island, and so, like, every house on Topsail is not just sitting next to the, 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 the beach so that the waves can take it. They're sitting on top of pilings. I think they're called pilings. I'm going to call them pillars because pilings sounds like they're cute and fuzzy to me. Little pilings. Um, and so, so they're on these wooden pillars, right? All the houses are on these wooden pillars. They are established. They are fixed. They are firm on these pillars. And thus, when the water comes on in, they remain firm. Right? They remain not moved, not tottered. Right? And so that's what's going on with this word. It's, they're, they're set up on these pillars. They're established. They're fixed. And this is, this is the heart of the immovable person. They aren't destabilized by the fear. They are fixed when the fear comes in. And so in our analogy, we have the house is your heart, the water is the fear, and, the, uh, and you're up on pillars. Well, what are those pillars? That's the next one. So his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Right, that's simple. You could, you could probably have guessed that. This is, this is pretty basic. You have fear destabilizes and trust stabilizes. For your heart Fear destabilizes your heart. It makes you move, shaken, but trust stabilizes your heart. What the pillars are trust. And trust in God isn't cheap either. It's, it's not like you can just flip a switch on. There's a lot of work that has to be done in your heart, right? Like this isn't just a platitude. Um, we're going to see more on that later. But the righteous man is this immovable man. He trusts in the Lord. His heart is fixed. And then it says his heart is steady. And that kind of sounds a lot like his heart is firm. And that's the point. They're very similar. This is the word samach. And what it, what it is is you're, you're supported. You're sustained. So let's say you've had a long day. And maybe it's pool day with the kids. So you've had to get them in and out of clothes. And, it's, and today they've decided for the first time in their lives to be disobedient. And so it's been nuts. You try to get them in bed at 8 o'clock, but now it's 11 somehow. And you walk out of their room, and you're just like, ugh. You lean on a wall, 
All right? That's samach. That's you're, you're, you're supported. You're sustained. You're, you're leaning on something. You see this word in Isaiah 26, 3. It says, and this is a beautiful verse for just to own. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26, 3. And so whose mind is, is, is leaning on you, is supported by you, is maintained by you. So these are both very similar words. They just mean, they mean stability. They mean those, those wooden pillars underneath of the house, that your heart is steady, your heart is firm and fixed. Next phrase, it says, he, he will not be afraid. Again, so we have two verses that basically say the same thing. You're stable. This is how your heart is stable, trust. And then two verses that say, all right, it's fear, it's fear, it's fear that is destabilizing. So they double that. Fear makes your heart wobbly. Fear makes your heart non-stable. Trust makes your heart stable. And then it continues. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. This brings something else into the picture. And this is really why we are here. The thing that helps his heart to remain steady is that he is heading towards certain victory. Right, that's, where, that's where he lives. He's living on his way to triumph. That, those pillars of trust, they are set up by this hope, by this, this ex- expectation of victory. Do you see any lack of, do you see any fear in there? No, it's until, from now until he looks in triumph on his enemies. This firms up his trust. This is a helpful thing for us as we want to firm up our trust in the Lord. All right, so for him, and I, I want to say why. Why does this help our trust? Well, first, because the victory coming assumes that God is able to do what he promised. It assumes that God is powerful and able to carry out his good plan. That's the foundation of this. All right, so like, imagine the opposite. If, we, if, we, if he didn't believe that about God, if he believed that God is a, is a good kind of guy, but I don't know if he's actually more powerful than my enemies. I don't know if God's more powerful than the devil. I don't know if God's actually going to be able to keep me safe. Would that steady his heart? Like, not at all. I mean, and for you, like, if... I, I like Jesus. He's kind. Is he really going to be able to save me from my sins? Maybe, maybe not. Like, that would totally destabilize us. It is the victory. It is the fact that God can do what he said he is going to do that, is, that helps us to trust him. And then secondly, that victory, what does that do? It gives us context for the trust. We aren't, we aren't very good with nebulous. We aren't very good with just trust, you know, abstract concept with nothing concrete. And so what this does, it paints the picture for us. It gives us a context to, for our hearts to grab onto. And for him, that is victory from his enemies. I'm going to have a firm heart. I'm not going to be afraid from now until I see victory. There's going to be a time period in between hearing the bad news and seeing victory, right? There's going to be a time where your faith is tested. There's going to be a time where in the Psalms you have to wait on the Lord. And in that time, his heart is firm because he, can, he believes that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And he can see 
He has a picture of that. He has context for that. All right, is it making sense? All right, so here's, here's our little summary. Um, here's a little summary statement. An immovable heart is stabilized by the coming victory. That's just, that's just what we've been saying. An immovable heart is stabilized by the coming victory. From now until victory comes. From now through the destabilizing flood, I'm going to be firm because God has promised victory. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take all that we just talked about. We're going to bring it to Psalm 27 so that we can see it in action. After I take a sip of water. That's Psalm 27. I, I love Psalm 27. My Bible study went through Psalm 27 this last semester, just for uh, two weeks, but I love it. Here's what it says. In the, we're, we're looking for an immovable heart. We're looking for victory. The Lord, says David, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? All right, so we see that immovable heart, right? We see that heart that is firm, that is fear-resistant, that is up on pillars. Now, why, David? What's the reason? Like, why are you so certain? What's going on, David? Well, then the next verse, it sa- he says it. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. That's why he's so confident. Like, that's, that's why he can, he can go into the battle knowing that the Lord has promised him certain victory. Like he's going he's gonna to go up against these enemies, and he knows that every time he raises his sword against an enemy, he is going to win. That gives him confidence, strength, fear resistance. And, and it's, gonna, it's about to happen again. All right, give us the next verse. Psalm 27.3, there we go. And just the, the amount of confidence this dude has. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me. This is some bad news. The war arise against me, yet I'll be confident. Notice that it is against me. Not that a war arose against Israel, who I'm the, the, the leader of, but a war arose against me. There are 40,000 people on the other side of that hill camping out, and tomorrow they're going to try to kill me. It's a personal thing. And so this would be an area in which we are totally terrified, but David is not. Why? Well, he spends the next verse talking about how he wants to be in the tabernacle. Beautiful verse. But here's what comes next. Psalm 27, 5. For he, God, will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Next slide. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. What is he saying there? God, I'm, I'm confident, I'm crazy confident, because I know that you will, one, keep me safe, that you will make me victorious, as he's above his enemies all around, and that I'm going to end up in your tabernacle praising you and worshiping you and thanking you for the victory. Again, an immovable heart. Is, we see David's immovable heart that is fear-resistant, that is stabilized by this victory. His trust is fueled, really, by this victory. I got way ahead of my notes, sorry. All right, so, um, so just to kind of do a silly illustration of this, uh, we have a cornerstone softball team. Anyone do that? Who's, who's on the softball team? Would you, yeah, one, two... 
All right, you guys get together and play softball. All right, cool. So we have a, a Cornerstone softball team. And, uh, and so let's say that you're in the Cornerstone softball team, and the night before the game, I'm going to say match, <laughs> the sport game, <laughs> the night before, whatever a baseball game is called, a softball game is called, um, it, you're, you have a legit vision, all right? This is, let's just pretend, let's all be continuationists for a second. You have a legit vision that, and God says, you will win tomorrow. It'll be seven to six, you guys are going to win. And you're like, all right. And so the next day, you go and you play, and, and it's the third inning, and, uh, and right now it's, it's four to one, but the other team is winning. Now, what is your heart like at that moment? Well, your heart is steady, firm, unafraid, because victory is certain. Because God has told you that you're going to win. You can push through all that fear because you, know, because you believe the word of God and have been given a context for victory. You can trust. All right. So that's an immovable heart. And this is, this is really present a lot of places in the Psalms. Um, for example, my eyes are ever towards the Lord. Why? Well, he will pluck my feet out of the net. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken or moved. That's the word moat again. He's my salvation, so I'm not going to be moved. And so I, I hope the point is clear. All right. Now, as we've discussed these passages, um, you, you rightly probably had some dissonance between David's certainty in a battle and Certainty in your life, troubles in your life, faith in your life through your difficulties. If David was in this room and he was scared about the battle, we could just say, David, dude, all right, you are promised to be king of Israel. God said that. You were anointed by the, by the prophet Samuel to be king of Israel. Don't be afraid. David, God said he would cut off your enemies before you. Don't be afraid. David, God said that someone is going to come from your line who's going to rule forever. By the way, his name is Jesus. He's pretty cool. David, don't be afraid. David, take heart. Victory is coming. But that cannot be said to you. Not about battles. Not about earthly conflict. You are not promised to win every fist fight with your coworkers. All right, that's not what's happening here. You are not promised to win wealth or comfort. Instead, what you are promised is tribulation and difficulty. We see this in Acts 14. Paul's been planting churches. Now he goes back to those churches to strengthen them. He wants his people to be immovable. He wants them to be not destabilized by fear, but stably trusting the Lord until the end. And he says this, uh, When they had preached... The gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. That is par for the course for Christians, not earthly victory, let alone battle victory. And yet there is a victory that we are promised. Yet there is something that God has said, this is the victory that you are to look to and be immovable. There is a victory that's supposed to strengthen our hearts, strengthen our faith, strengthen our trust. And that victory is the resurrection. 
Your victory is the resurrection. And so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 58. Paul writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is not the military victory of David. This is not the economic blessings given to the righteous, though again, there's that principle. This is not victory in the Middle East or a presidential election. This victory is the resurrection and eternal life that follows. In Christ, we win. There is this grand victory for us, and confidence in that victory makes us immovable. Confidence in that victory is the pillars underneath of our house that keeps us from being destabilized as the bad things come and the fear washes in. It is a help for us to trust him. It is something for us to ground us. And so what I want to do is just talk about four things from this passage just to give us a greater context for this victory. We've been in the Old Testament, now we're in the New Testament. And so here are four things about this victory that I hope will help to strengthen your heart and give you some immovability in your heart, give you some ballast, give you some firmness in your heart as you go through a lot of different stuff in this life, many tribulations. So here we go. Uh, Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. He is talking about your body. Your body is perishable, right? If Amazon wants to box you up and ship you to the next state, they would put on the box perishable. Right? Because that's what they put on the box when something can decay and rot and spoil. And you know that, especially if you're over 30. Right? <laughs> I was warned in my 20s, like, man, you hit 30 and everything starts to creak and hurt. And I can attest. And you got the, let's see what 40 is like. Let's see what 50 is like. Yeah. Like, but how many of your difficulties, how many of your actual practical difficulties are because of your body? Problems with your body. How many times in the last month have you been to the doctor or have you taken someone else to the doctor? Like, so many of the difficulties. There's that sickness. There's that heart that misses beats. There's you wake up and your knees hurt, or you need stronger glasses. Again, we have perishable bodies, but in the end, Jesus gives us victory over physical suffering. The perishable puts on the imperishable. You will put on a new body, a body that that Paul doesn't even say is mortal. Like, yes, it is physical. Yes, we're going to be in physical bodies. But he doesn't use the word mortal. He says it's immortal. Right? There will be no illness. There will be no painful joints. There will be no decay. There will be no issues with your body, no physical sufferings. Jesus Christ has won that. 
He is in a new glorified body now, and we will join him, for he is the first fruit of the resurrection, and we are the rest of it. And so we look forward to victory from physical sufferings. Friends, you are not over the hill by any means. By any means. We look forward to that, and that gives us context for our trust. Context to help our hearts to trust in him. And then Paul goes on. Then shall, come to, uh, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So we have victory over physical suffering, and we have victory over death itself. All right, of all the things that make your heart wobbly, that make your heart unstable, wouldn't it be news that you or a loved one is about to die? Wouldn't that be the biggest thing? That takes the cake. You know, we talked about sitting around, fearing possibilities, not fearing real things. Like, I'm worried I'm going to get eaten by a bear, you know, when I was younger. Like, the death is the big one, but death is swallowed up in victory. Who, who can say that? Like, what an insane phrase. Like, all, all, that's what everyone has done. Everyone who has lived thus far has died. We will most likely all walk through that river And yet death is swallowed up in victory. It says in Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is about heaven, the new world, when we have the new body. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Death will be defeated and destroyed. This is victory. This is heart firming up victory. Again, the biggest problems in your life are solved by this, are addressed by this. There's an old Scottish Bible commentator. My last name is Wallace, so I think Scottish stuff is cool. So there's an old Scottish Bible commentator named James Morrison, and he said this about death and the grave. All right, and it's in old-timey English, so I apologize, but this this just kind of like really gets into my heart and soothes my heart as we think about death. So here's what he said. Blessed Redeemer, thou hast perfumed the noisome grave by thy temporary abode in its dreary mansions. I said it was old English, right? right? From a prison, thou hast changed it into a scene of hope. Thou hast made it the resting place of weary pilgrims. And all the members of thy mystical body can look on it as the gate of heaven. What he is saying is that Jesus' short stay in the grave, right? He's in the tomb for three days. And that Jesus' short stay in the grave transformed the grave for us into a beautiful place, into a pleasant place, a place of rest and hope, the very gate of heaven. And so now, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Death is defeated. Physical suffering, death. And Paul goes on, this is number three in this, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. My son was stung by a bee this week, and the week before he was bitten by a bee, so these bees are getting nuts. I don't know what's going on with bees in my front yard. All right, so, so death is like a bee. So no, it doesn't say the stinger of death is sin, but that's the idea. The way death gets to you, the thing that makes death a problem in your life is sin. 
All right? a, a bee needs a stinger to get to you, or else it's just massaging you with its furry little butt. All right, so our, our forefather Adam, so our forefather Adam sinned, okay? All right, he sinned, bummer. Now, did the next generation kind of rise up and like, Dad, like, man, we are holy, we don't sin, but you sinned, you punk. You know, hopefully they wouldn't say that, that'd be another sin. But, uh, like, that isn't happening. Ever since Adam sinned, we have all been sinning. And we have all been kicking butt at sinning. We have been sinning thoroughly with selfish thoughts. We, we think, we do, we say wicked things, and then we surprise ourselves by diving deeper and deeper into things that the devil loves and God rightly hates, things that a holy God would punish. That's all of us. And yet, it says in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You will be holy and blameless before him. No sin at all. None. Washed clean. Now, I, I do want to mention, like, this, this sin thing. This sin thing is so important for our understanding of the gospel, for our understanding of Christianity, if you don't understand the depth of human sin, then you will not see God's love as anything at all. It is the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth to pay the penalty for people who don't deserve it. That's the big deal. That's the amazing love that we sing about. People who deserve his wrath receive unmerited favor, receive grace, and then we worship him and praise him. We don't deserve this victory. That's the victory of the Son of God. We don't deserve that. So friends, I hope you have an understanding. I hope that you embrace your own sinfulness so that you can embrace the grace and love of God. All right. So in heaven, we have victory over physical sufferings. We have victory over death. We have victory over sin. And again, how much of your issues in your life, your practical issues this week, how much of them were because of your own sinfulness? Like how many of those issues between you and your wife how much, of, how much does your sin impact how you deal with your kids or your coworkers? Like there is victory coming for that. And then there's not just your sins, but other people's sins, right? All sin is going to be wiped away. Whether the sin is paid for on the cross or whether the sin is paid for in hell. Jesus says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs hear his voice. You can go ahead and throw up John 5. And come out in those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you have enemies, like other conflicts in your life? Well, every single word is judged by the Lord. Every single, like God judges, knows and will take hold account every single word that is said, every single, single conflict you ever have. You know, if you do have enemies, Christ said to what? Pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. But whether that conflict, whether that sin of somebody else that you're dealing with is accounted for on the cross or in hell, it will meet perfect justice. Like really, that conflict that you're having, it'll be over. There'll be no sin. There'll be no issue. There'll be no interpersonal conflict. It'll be done. Justice will be done. 
In heaven, you probably, probably won't be sitting around thinking like, being like, all right, I was right about that one, I was right about that one. Uh, you'll probably be on your face before the Lord, grateful that he has, has given you mercy and grace. You're probably worshiping him. But these conflicts will meet perfect justice. And then it ends. The power of sin is the law. I'm not going to talk too much about that because it's a big thing. But when God holds us to rules, it shows how wicked we are, okay? But thanks be to God, back to the verse, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so we, we spent all that time in Psalm 112. We spent all that time in Psalm 27 just to kind of get us ready to see this victory and to set us up to be strong because of that victory, to resist fear because of that victory, for this to be something that this week helps you to be immovable. All right, that's, that's the point. This is the real victory. This is winning the battle. This is far better than what David did, right? Prolonging your life a couple years, David died anyway. All right, but for us, this victory comes because we here possess the most valuable, amazing thing that can ever be possessed. Sonship, whether you're a man or a woman, sonship for the almighty king of the universe. An eternity with him to be loved and to love him. An eternity with fellowship and worship in a new body that is imperishable. That is the most valuable thing of all time, and it is coming. And right now we're in that waiting period, and the bad news keeps coming. The water keeps on coming. And I pray that we'll be firm in heart, steady in heart, until the end. All right, there's one more point, and I've got three and a half minutes. I think we'll be able to do it. Unless I drink for three and a half minutes. We shall see. All right, success. All right, so where Paul then goes with this, what, what this kind of buildup is for, what immovability is paired with, this is important, is kingdom work. Let's put 50, verse 58 back up. Be immovable in kingdom work. This should be the next slide now. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. That means be seated, unmoved. It's like hedreos. It, it means you, there's a chair and you sit there. Be steadfast, immovable, and then what? Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. David could run into the battle and fight, do kingdom work at that point. He could run into the battle knowing that no arrow was going to hit him and that he would have certain victory. You and I get to, with the same energy, run into kingdom work knowing we will get hit by the arrow of suffering. We will get hit by the arrow of death. But nevertheless, we have the great victory coming for us. We get to, we do things as a result of this. Because one, I mean, one aspect of this, one of the main takeaways of this is what Hebrews 6 calls it is an, it is an anchor for the soul. That's what Hebrews 6 is talking about. All right, this is an anchor for our soul. It gives us peace. But the next application is this, is that we work hard. We work abundantly. Now, you might say, well, what is the work of the Lord? Is this, is this evangelism? That's, that's the question, right? Well, for Paul, a good deal of it was evangelism. He was going from town to town telling people the Good news about Jesus Christ. He was strengthened in his persecutions and beatings because of the heavenly reward. And, I, and evangelism is a part of it. Like, we, we need to talk to people about Christ. 
You know, St. Francis of Assisi says what? Uh, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Great, but if you never use words, they're never going to get the gospel, right? So at some point, you're going to need to tell them about Jesus Christ, which is, this is a side note, which is more important now, maybe, than it has been. Because, because now, the culture is so acidic to the things of God that when, when a bunch of you know, non-believers come in here, and I hope, I hope you're here, non-believers, when they come in here, it can be acidic here because they're running against the things of God that our culture is so against. And so if you're in love with the culture, you're going to be offended by the things of God. That, that is just the case. If we want to preach the whole counsel of God, that's going to be a thing. And so all the more, all the more time for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the safe places of our neighborhoods and homes and when people are ready, bring them on to church. I hope that makes sense and isn't going to get me in trouble. All right. But so what is this? So it is evangelism. Yeah, evangelism. But what else? The work of the Lord. Okay, this has to be something that all Christians can do, not just the, the evangelistic folk. All right. All Christians have to be able to do this. This is a command for all believers in Jesus Christ. And so abounding in the work of the Lord is frequent and, friends, time-consuming use of your spiritual gifts for the kingdom of God, as Pastor Steve preached a couple weeks ago. Right? It, is, it is something that, it, it's abounding, right? It's frequent and time-consuming. It's a big part of your life is using your spiritual gifts. I'm a worship leader uh, here, and so like, I'm with all these instruments all the time, right? And so that's how I see these things. You, like, Greg is a guitar, and... Gary is a keyboard, right? Like that, it's like, the idea is that you're all different. We all have different gifts of the Spirit, and it sounds different when they are played, but it's all a part of the symphony of kingdom work that God is making for himself. And so when, when the Holy Spirit plays Pastor Steve, it sounds like preaching. When he plays Mark Lozier, it sounds like fixing something at church or in the mission field, among other things. It might sound like inviting neighbors to your home. It might sound like teaching your kids about Jesus. It might sound, about, sound like gathering men together for a men's night like we had last week. Whatever it is, it is possible for you to not do it or to do it seldom. Right? Those are the options, right? We can abound in that. We can do it seldom or we can never do it. And Paul is commanding, guys, do it abundantly. The thing that you're designed for, do it abundantly. Let it take up some time. Like, is there something that comes to mind right now that you're maybe afraid of doing? You're like, I think this is what the Lord's want me to do. You know, maybe ask someone, make sure it's not stupid, and not just your, you know, your own thoughts. But is this, is this something the Lord's calling me to do, and I'm afraid? Well, friends, that's the point of this message. That's the point of what Paul's saying. He's saying, be immovable. You're walking towards victory. You can take that water because you're on the stilts. You can take that fear because your heart is firm as you look forward to the resurrection and you know that your, your labor is not in vain. That your labor impacts souls, produces eternal rewards. This is what kept the Apostle Paul going. So may, in Cornerstone, may there be lots of it. Oh, may there be salvation here in, in Harford County. May there be people nudged towards salvation if your gift isn't getting them across the line, right? Just using your gift for the glory of God. May the resurrection make you immovable.
You get it? You good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the victory. Father, it is, uh, for me, convicting to, to need to abound in kingdom work, but Father, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us all, that you would make our hearts firm in the truth that we look forward to, in the context that you've given us for trust. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be immovable in our hearts. Lord, there are so many things that can just knock us over, so many things that can just distract us, that can delay us, that, can, that we can spend our time spinning our wheels and struggling instead of doing your kingdom work. I pray for help, that we might be strong in Christ as we look forward to your resurrection, to the resurrection, to our resurrection. Oh, make these things real for us, Father. Please bless us now as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Jason. May we abound in the work of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's our great privilege to now partake of the bread and the cup. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, we welcome you to join us. If you fail to pick up elements, you can find them at the back of the room. And today for our Meditation, I want us to consider Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. It's a psalm that was written when Israel was going through a time of tribulation. And the psalmist writes, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. In the New Testament, there is an equivalent verse. It's talking about the Messiah that is to come, and our security is in him. In Hebrews 13:8, it tells us that Jesus Christ it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as Jason was talking today about being immovable, guess why we're immovable? Because Christ is immutable. He doesn't change. He is there. We can count on him. We can trust him. So we put our trust in him, and we can be immovable. Stephen Shonark, who 